Our uh, first scripture reading today comes from Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out our land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed to dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on their way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brother and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then what the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Our next reading is from Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 42. The apostles returned to Jesus and taught him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place for a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Our sermon text today is from Mark 7. I'll start with verse 24 and read to verse 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. 
Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Uh, So we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. And what we've been doing is particularly centering on a series of nameless women whose whose stories Marx has included in this gospel to make some very profound points. We started with the story of Peter's mother-in-law. And last, uh, time, last week, we looked at the story of the hemorrhagic woman. Mark is specifically trying to do something in his gospel. He wants to redefine the kingdom of God and, what the, and who the Messiah is by presenting Jesus as a different kind of king. And his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, uh, very different from what we might have expected, very different from our common understanding of what a king and a kingdom is. And in order to make this point, Mark takes special care to elevate different marginalized groups of the ancient world, including women. And he portrays them with dignity and honor that would have been unexpected and probably unheard of in that time. Mark also purposely juxtaposes these stories that include women uh, with... um, He juxtaposes these stories with stories of the disciples in order to highlight key differences about uh, the the true nature of Jesus and the true nature of the kingdom of God. Now, the crazy thing about Mark's gospel is that the nameless women come across as ideal disciples in a way that the 12 disciples never really do. Today, we're going to examine the passage, the story of the Syrophoenician woman. Now, to provide some context for this passage, uh, what we need to understand is that Jesus has just been confronted by a delegation of scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem over the issue of ritual cleanliness. If you don't know what a scribe is, we're pretty familiar with the Pharisees. A scribe was kind of like, in some ways, a lawyer, probably more equivalent to what we would think of of a theologian. Like if you were to run into somebody who's like, I know a lot about theology, and I can tell you why you're wrong about what you think about stuff and uh, why I'm right. That's the idea about a theologian. We've probably all come across those type of people. Um, Jesus, of course, gets the last word in each of these debates, uh, dispatching the scribes and the Pharisees with Jesus' typical clever and effective arguments. However, Jesus is tired. He's become tired of these debates. And so what he does is he travels outside of Israel. He figures if he's outside of Israel, he gets away from the scribes and the Pharisees, and maybe he can get a chance to withdraw. So he goes to this Phoenician city of Tyre, which was a pretty big deal. Tyre was a pretty big city. We'll talk about it a little bit more. So he tries to seek solitude, and just like before, he has no success. He's done this several times in the book of Mark, and this is no exception. This time, Jesus' peace and quiet is interrupted by a woman who wants Jesus to heal her daughter from a demon. Now, if we pay attention to the details, we see that Mark is trying to make several points using very few words. Typical Mark, uh, Mark way to tell a story. 
Notice that no sooner has Jesus found a house for the purpose of hiding out than this woman tracks him down. Mark uses the word immediately to describe the word woman's speed in seeking out Jesus. Clearly, Jesus' reputation as an exorcist has spread beyond the confines of Galilee. Now, the woman at the center of this story is described by Mark as a Gentile. And the word Gentile is actually literally trans, it should be literally translated as Greek. It's not so much an ethnicity as it is a culture. She belonged to the Greek culture. Mark also goes on to describe her more fully as a Syrophoenician. So the question probably many of you all have right now is, what the heck is a Syrophoenician? <laughs> so uh, silly persons who don't know these things, uh, <laughs> you, but believe me, you can be forgiven for not knowing this. Um, the Syrophoenicians were a group of people that lived north of Israel in what we would now call Lebanon. Okay, so the Lebanese are Syrophoenicians. The word... Um, they had a long and ancient history in this area. Uh, their big cities were Tyre and Sidon. They were major commercial trading centers in the ancient Near East. And as a result, the Syrophoenicians were a great seafaring people. Uh, they established colonies throughout the Mediterranean world, most famously in a place called Carthage. So if you were a Roman history nerd, if you remember anything about Roman history from a world civilization class back in high school, uh, you might recall the Punic Wars with Hannibal and the elephants marching over the Alps and that sort of things. Those were Phoenicians. Uh, those people uh, controlled um, these trade centers, and so record-keeping was important. And so one of their big... Uh, accomplishments was they developed the alphabet. So the alphabet that they use is actually a Phoenician invention. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, if you remember, there's the, the kind of like the worst king in, in all of the Old Testament is King Ahab, or arguably, there were a lot of bad ones, but he was pretty bad. And his wife, uh, the notorious Queen Jezebel, was a Phoenician. Um, ethnically, the Phoenicians were actually related to the Israelites. They were a Semitic people. And they even spoke Phoenician. The language of uh, Phoenician language was actually very similar to Hebrew. If you spoke Hebrew, you could probably understand Phoenician. Um, frequently, uh, they were enemies of the Israelites. Uh, the Bible often presents them as prideful and arrogant because of their great wealth. You know, they were these commercial traders, and so they were very rich. Uh, they worshipped Baal and Astarte, which were fertility gods. Uh, and many of the Israelites adopted worship of these gods. And so the Phoenicians were, were viewed negatively as the, uh, the group of people who have led the Israelites astray to this idol worship. Uh, if you remember the story of Elijah's confrontation with uh, the priest of Baal in Mount Carmel, uh, those were Phoenician priests. So, the point here is that when we encounter this Syrophoenician woman, we were already primed by the history of the Old Testament to view her negatively. Now, her actions totally reinforce this. Uh, she, a woman, burst into the house where Jesus in lodge, is lodging and falls down before her feet. This behavior would have been considered highly inappropriate and a clear transgression of the well-defined gender barriers of that time. Everything about it would have been considered shameful. But of course, uh, readily accepting such a level of shame also indicates that this woman's desperate at the plight of her daughter. So 
what we have here is an action that really can be interpreted in two ways. Uh, one, we can see this uh, woman is impertinent and loathsome. But we can also view her pitifully and in need of compassion. And the question then becomes, how is Jesus going to view her? We soon find the answer. With Jesus quickly denying the woman's request on the grounds that his mission is to the Jewish people first. Note that Jesus is not arguing that the non-Jews have no role and that healing and restoration will never come to them. However, he is postponing this healing and restoration until after the completion of his mission to Israel. For this woman, though, at this time, delay is effectively a denial. And then the crazy thing here is that Jesus phrases this denial in the form of what we would consider today basically a racial slur. Jesus says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In this analogy, the children are the Jews and the non-Jews are dogs. Now, the word for dogs here, as many commentators point out, is a diminutive. It's probably better translated puppies. Now, uh, you need to remember something, though. Dogs in the ancient world were not domesticated. Uh, They were not a positive symbol. Puppies are not cute. Uh, They are annoying, dirty, and smelly scavengers. Uh, Some people think that the puppy was used to soften the blow here. It is not. Uh, What is uh, the reason puppy is used is because it's the woman's daughter that wants to be healed. And so uh, the, the equivalent to that would be a young dog. So... You're probably busy right now trying to wrap your heads around Jesus' borderline abusive language. Well, I don't even know if it's borderline. Uh, By this poor woman and her daughter. But here's what happens. The woman comes back with her own reply. She begins politely enough. She addresses Jesus as Lord and not here being a divine meaning, but as a term of respect for a person in a higher social position. And here's what she says. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Let me try to illustrate what has just happened using the art of pantomime here. This is what the woman has done. She has gone up to Jesus, made her statement, and she has gone. (laughs) That is a mic drop. (laughs) That's the best I can do, a mic drop. Uh, What has happened here is that this pagan, Greek, foreign, idolatrous woman has just bested Jesus in this verbal sparring match. Jesus doesn't even attempt a comeback. Instead, Jesus just quickly admits the truth of her response and does what the woman asks and exercises the demon from her daughter. What has just happened? What has happened is that Jesus has so admired the cleverness of this pagan woman's argument that a Gentile puppy might enjoy a crumb of his power at the same time that the Jewish children enjoy a full portion that Jesus reverses a position he had only just previously emphatically declared. What had just happened is absolutely stunning, and it's supposed to be stunning. This is why Mark includes this story in his gospel. We should not underplay its unprecedented and stunning significance. We really don't need another story of Jesus exercising demons. There's plenty of those in Mark. We get that Jesus can do this. What has happened 
is that Jesus has just spent the previous chapter debating the best and the brightest scribes and Pharisees sent from Jerusalem specifically to take him down. And Jesus has waxed them over and over again. Yet here we have this likely uneducated pagan woman absolutely lay the smack down on Jesus. And furthermore, Jesus totally acknowledging her victory. Now, there's several ways we can interpret this series of events. One, we can assume that Jesus is playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> Literally devil's advocate. <laughs> Assuming the position of a typical Jew in order to have the Syrophoenician woman subvert this view. Jesus' humble acknowledgement of her argument is the proper response that is to be given as God's grace is extended to those who are outside of Israel. There's another view. It's a more controversial view that the woman's argument has actually changed Jesus's mind. Those with a high Christology are nervous about this. They, they might find this uh, offensive. At the same time, we must remember that one of the key uh, one of the key pieces of our theology is that Jesus is actually human. Uh, he, is, uh, he is afflicted with human limitations. He accepts those limitations when he comes to earth. That is part of what the incarnation is about. The book of Luke says that Jesus increased in wisdom, in statue, and in favor. Perhaps this is an example of Jesus growing in wisdom. I don't know that I'm going to answer this question today. I don't know that I know the answer here, and I don't necessarily think it's Mark's point. However, I think it is interesting for us to think about. So food for thought. Now, here's the thing, though, about this story. We need to remember that not only does Mark include this story for a reason, but Mark has placed this story where it is for a reason. Mark has situated this story specifically in the midst of several stories that mention bread. In fact, it's in the middle of, and, and everybody should be able at this point, I think, between Chris and I, to remember Mark's famous rhetorical device that he uses over and over again. Does anybody remember? It's called the Markin sandwich. The sandwich. Nice. The Markin sandwich. Also about bread. Also about bread. Right. Yes. I was about to make that joke. Thanks okay. for taking it from me. <laughs> <laughs> Who's preaching? You or me? <laughs> uh, this story is set in between two feeding stories, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the story of the feeding of the 4,000. So for this reason, I want to focus our attention on the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that's contained in our second scripture reading. In this story, Jesus is teaching. He's surrounded by a large crowd. As it, get, as it gets late, the disciples tell Jesus that it is time to end the show. The crowd needs to disperse and get something to eat. Otherwise, they will expect the disciples to feed them. It's the same reason you have your kid's birthday party at 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock's after lunch, and you have plenty of time to get them home so you don't won't be responsible for feeding them for dinner. Jesus responds not only by changing their plan, but by assigning the disciples the responsibility of feeding the crowd. Exactly what they were trying to avoid. The disciples' response is sarcasm. What do you want us to do, Jesus? Come up with thousands of dollars and money to buy them food? But Jesus, trusting that God will provide, looks to heaven and takes the limited resources provided to him and then miraculously feeds 5,000 people until they are full. And not only that, there are 12 baskets of food left over. 
See, the disciples look and they see limitation. They look and they say, there's not enough. But Jesus proves in his feeding that they do have enough. And not only enough, they have an abundance. Now, hopefully you're starting to see the contrast here that Mark is trying to beat us over the head with between the disciples and this nameless woman. You see, the disciple bros, again, get it wrong. They don't think there is enough. They see the kingdom of God is limited in some way. But this Syrophoenician woman, though, an unlearned, unclean, idolatrous pagan woman, has somehow perceived that this is crazy. How can someone who has the power to exercise demons be subject to limitation? She has perceived a truth that the disciples, despite all their advantages, despite their, uh, their time with Jesus, despite their uh, understanding as Jews, cannot get their head around. The kingdom of God is not limited. It's not limited by resources. It's not limited by geographic boundaries, by culture, or even by ethnic division. Again, an unnamed woman in Mark is guiding something very right. The disciples have failed to properly understand. Now, I have purposely withheld one key piece of information uh, when I gave you the historical background of the Syrophoenicians. Here's something else you need to know about Syrophoenicians. They are Canaanites. As in the terrible, wicked evil people that the Israelites were commanded to wipe out and whose land they were to take over. The Canaanites in the Old Testament are kind of the embodiment of everything that's wrong with the world. Here's what Moses tells the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy right before the Israelites begin their war on the, against Canaan. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take position, possession of and clears away the nations before you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. There's not a lot of ambiguity there. Pretty much the clear teaching of Deuteronomy is to unflinchingly and without any sort of compassion eradicate the Canaanites and no matter what, Don't make any sort of agreement with them. This principle is repeated several times in Deuteronomy. Now, the story of this war of conquest of the Canaanites is contained in the book of Joshua. Now, as we turn and look at our passage from Joshua today, we find that Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, is planning to send two spies to infiltrate the large southern stronghold of Canaan, the city of Jericho. A couple of details in verse 1 tell us already that something's not quite right in the state of Israel. You see, 40 years earlier, Moses had sent spies out to Canaan. The spies had returned disheartened with reports of incredibly strong and numerous armies of Canaanites that would be impossible to defeat. Despite witnessing events like the Exodus, the people are fearful. They even attempt to appoint a new leader in the place of Moses to take them back to Egypt. God becomes upset at their lack of faith, and he punishes the Israelites by sentencing them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. 
Second, the spies leave from a place called Shittim. Shittim was where the Israelites had previously chafed after the hot but pagan women of Moab, and they began adopting the worship of Baal. So already Joshua in verse 1 is presenting us with a couple of red flags about the spies and their reconnaissance mission. It doesn't get much better. Because when we come to verse 2, we find that pretty much the first thing these spies do when they get to Jericho is what? They go to a prostitute. Our translations soften it a bit, but in the Hebrew, it's full of innuendo that they are doing exactly what they think you are, they are going to that you think they are doing uh, by going to Rahab's house. Rahab, this prostitute, represents everything that Israel was supposed to avoid. She's idolatrous. She's foreign. She's a Canaanite. She's sexually promiscuous. Yet, look at how she's portrayed in chapter 2 as the story goes on. She's hospitable. She risks her life to protect strangers. She lies to her king. And she acknowledges the supremacy of Israel's God. In fact, Rahab is quite the theologian. She states unequivocally that God has given the Israelites the land of Canaan, just like God had said in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. She almost quotes it directly. In the next three verses, she directly quotes Exodus 23, 7, Exodus 15, 15, Deuteronomy 31, 3 through 4, Deuteronomy 1.28, and Deuteronomy 4.39. Not too bad for a foreign pagan woman. Probably better than the spies could have done. In fact, even crazier, when the spies return and give their report, they say nothing of the military value. Of military value. They don't talk about troop locations or troop numbers or weaknesses in the cities of defense, anything that you might have thought spies were supposed to do. Basically, what they do is they quote Rahab's words to Joshua. (laughs) That's kind of funny. Um, This story is amazingly subversive. We never read it this way. But it totally contradicts the idea that the Canaanites are completely and irreversibly corrupt and should be eradicated. Instead, what ends up happening here is the spies make a covenant with Rahab, agreeing to save her and her family from destruction. For those of you keeping score at home, that is two things that the Israelites were not supposed to do. It totally contradicts the commands that Moses gave them back in Deuteronomy. Interestingly, this is but one of several instances in the Old Testament in which clear prohibitions against certain people are violated. See, let me tell you the story of Rahab. Here's what's going to happen. Rahab is saved. Does anybody know what ends up happening with Rahab, what she goes on to do? Anybody know who Rahab's son is? Boaz, as in Boaz who marries Ruth. Guess what country Ruth is from? Moab. Yeah. Let me tell you what the Bible says about Moabites. No Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants to the 10th generation shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That's bad news for Ruth. But of course, Ruth eventually becomes the grandmother of the great King David. Both Rahab and Ruth are in Jesus's familial line. Nor is this the only place we see this reversal in the Old Testament. If you read the book of Nahum, 
It views the Assyrians as the most reprehensible, evil, imaginable people on the face of the earth, which they probably were. It takes poetic glee in their utter and complete destruction. Yet, then we read the book of Jonah, in which God offers forgiveness even to the Assyrians. If you read Deuteronomy, eunuchs are totally out, according to Deuteronomy 23. Yet even in the Old Testament, there's a change. Isaiah sees a time when this is going to change, and he looks forward to it. And then we find Philip in the book of Acts, baptizing a eunuch. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, there's, this constant, there's a constant tension between the need for Israel to draw clear boundaries in order to maintain their allegiance with God and the goal of extending God's grace to the entire world. I think the key to resolving this tension is to understand the greater purpose of the biblical story. The Bible, and this is quite remarkable for an ancient work, begins not with the creation of Israel. It begins with the creation of the whole world. It begins with the creation of humanity, which everybody eventually descends from in the biblical story. If we read on to the book of Joshua, Joshua says Abraham was a pagan dwelling among pagans. But the point of this call was to bless Abraham, but to do so in order that all families of the earth might be blessed through Abraham. It's uh, Genesis 12, 3. All of you uh, who've listened to me for any time should be able to quote that in your sleep. Uh, it's It's a key verse. I think it's a key verse because it sets forth the story of the Bible. The goal of God's mission in the world is that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth, the whole earth, as the waters cover the sea. And it's the primacy of this goal that everything else must be subservient to. God's grace is not exclusive to one people. God's grace is not limited to one place or one people. It is through Jesus that we see this most fully realized. As John says, in him we have received grace upon grace. There is enough bread to feed everyone. This is the truth that the Syrophoenician woman drops on Jesus and it leads to the healing and restoration of his daughter. This is the truth (coughs) that will lead to the healing and restoration of the whole world. And here's the next bit of awesomeness that Mark is going to smack us with. Soon after Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman, he travels to a place called the Decapolis. And I want you to note that the word Decapolis is a mix of two Greek words. You probably know them. Deca is in decimal, meaning ten. And polis, meaning city. The Decapolis was a group of ten cities that were established in the first century BC, kind of as a, as a kind of almost as a, a, a Greco, uh, as centers of Greco-Roman culture in the midst of Jewish Israel. If you wanted to eat pork, if you wanted to go to the gym, if you wanted to catch a play, or anything else that was forbidden by Jewish law, and you were stuck in Israel, you could go to the Decapolis and do it. In other words. It was a foreign, unclean, pagan place filled with idolaters and other people that the Bible says Jews should not associate it with. Yet, right after this story of the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus goes to the Decapolis, and he has compassion on the crowds. Again, the disciples question how Jesus could possibly feed the crowds since they're in a desert. 
This time, with only seven loaves, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. The whole story is a replay of the previous story of the feeding of the 5,000, only this time it's in Gentile, Greek, pagan, idolatrous territory. Notice that in the feeding of the 5,000, the number 12 is important. 12 baskets of food are left over. Of course, 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. In the feeding of the 4,000, the important number is seven. Seven baskets were left over. Seven was the days of creation of everything. And so seven symbolizes completeness, universality. Jesus actually makes this point to the Pharisees right afterwards when they demand a sign that God's kingdom has come. The subject of bread will come up again in Mark as Jesus declares the bread of the Passover feast is symbolic of his very body. The bread he will divide up to feed his followers. And if you've been tracking with Mark's gospel, you will understand that Jesus' followers can no longer be limited to the 12, but they have been extended to the whole world. Do you see then what that means for the story of this Syrophoenician woman? A woman who, again, we aren't even given her name. It means that this story, with this impertinent woman's desperate request and her witty takedown of Jesus, acts as a turning point in the book of Mark. Jesus moves from particularity, from borders and exclusion, to universality, openness, and inclusion. Jesus allows himself to be shamed by this foreign pagan woman, but the result is surprising, and it's a dramatic increase in the kingdom of God. This is exactly that backwards, upside-down kingdom that Mark is trying to have us to understand. It's exactly why the gospel is able to expand outside of Israel. The gospel cannot be limited because the message of Jesus is that there is enough. It's the point that the new convert Paul grasps so thoroughly to the point where he will no longer tolerate any sort of division. Peter may be embarrassed by the gospel's openness and he may separate himself like this uh, from people like this woman, but Paul will have none of it. Paul will repeatedly call such thinking out as a relic of an old dying world that no longer has any relevance. So changed is the world, in part, by what this Syrophoenician woman has awakened. We are all sons of God through Christ, Paul says. All the old divisions have broken down so that there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave or free. There is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. There is bread enough for all people. It is then our job in the church to believe this and to live this. We should not look around and ever see the other. For us, there is only one other category of people, the neighbor. Let us go forth and create a new community, a community in which everyone is invited to have a seat at the table. A table that is provided not from our limited resources, but out of God's abundant blessings. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is the future. Replacing the old ways of division and factionalism and competition. In this way, we will practice resurrection.